Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to this MedHeads episode. Today we chat with our regular guest, Marie Eisma. Marie, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Good, good, very good. So I think today we're going to take the opportunity of talking about emotional freedom technique. Yes. Tell me all about emotional freedom technique. Okay, so emotional freedom technique um, has been a field of um, practice. It's been a field of intervention for a range of different um, presentations, anxiety, depression, uh, eating problems, sort of food cravings, as a, uh, PTSD. It's been studied in over 10 different, uh, I believe 10 different countries with about 60 different uh, reviews being done. And it seems to be offering people considerable relief in regards mm. to their symptoms. So it's quite positive. So we know it works, but what is it? So it's a combination of the best, probably the best way to describe it is it's it's Eastern energy, Eastern energy meets Western psychology is probably the best way to describe it. So essentially, what happens is we are working on um, specific memories that have a lot of a emotion, a charge, uh, emotion attached to it. So something with a big emotional charge, working on basically the emotions and working them through the body. The beautiful thing about uh, emotional freedom technique is people don't actually have to tell their whole story, uh, which is mm, one of the, especially for people who've got, yeah, people who have got histories of trauma don't want to have to go into necessarily the graphics of something that may have been really awful to experience. They do not want to have to fear of reliving it again. So when um, EFT is applied, we're actually uh, tapping on certain parts of the body that uh, release the stress cortisol and brings the cortisol levels down so that people can uh, have a different relationship to the original stressor. And it means that they're no longer um, activated, activated by those particular memories, which is great. So you mentioned tapping and you mentioned Eastern medicine or philosophy. By that, are you alluding to the use of some form of physical intervention on the actual meridian lines of the human body as defined by Eastern medicine? Yeah, so probably the best way to describe this is, you know, some people are familiar with acupuncture. Yeah. The best way to describe this is emotional acupuncture. And there's no needles and there's no pain. <laughs> right. So tell me specifically what happens in the terms of the physical inter intervention. Okay, so what happens is they say someone's got a particular memory that they're that they're struggling with, or they've got a particular reaction. It could be anxiety, it could be depression. We get them to rate their SUDS. So you may have heard me speak about that. So that's the severity under distress score. Yeah. So if someone's saying, "Look, you know, um, got a presentation. My anxiety's up at an eight, I would ask them just to talk about sort of the you know what they're what they're experiencing. The beautiful thing with EFT is people would give words to the whole range of experiences they might have. So with sort of CBT, you know, sometimes we kind of think that if we change our thinking, then our behaviours change. Well, the thing with EFT is more often than not, people know their, 
their chattering that's going on in their head. So while someone's actually tapping on all these different points, what we refer to as the meridian points, um, they're giving voice to all the anxiety. So it could be, you know, all this anxiety, highly anxious, you know, whatever it might be. And then after we do a round or two of tapping, uh, we go back and we rescore it. And usually uh, the uh, suds will come down and then it, it basically just clears the, clears, clears the system of um, the cortisol and it just makes people feel much more comfortable in their skin and they don't have that emotional charge anymore in their bodies, which is just bliss. So tapping, literally just like that, yeah? So there's a karate chop point. So one of the things that whenever we're doing um, emotional freedom technique is we set up a what we call a setup statement. And a setup statement is to work on preventing what we refer to as um, psychological reversal. So psychological reversal is where, and we see this a lot with many clients, they'll say, oh, I really want to, I really want to lose weight, but <laughs> um, I really want to give up smoking. But, but, and the, the psychological reversal means that when we're tapping on this particular point, there is some connection with that, uh, basically making sure that we're acknowledging that the yes, but exists in the, in the um, unconscious. So we tap through that and we give we, we go through that about three times, uh, making up a set-up statement. So a set-up statement essentially could be, you know, even though I might have a lot of low mood, I still totally accept and honour myself. So it's basically saying that we give ourselves permission to experience ourselves as we are, that takes the pressure off, and we repeat that three times and then we go through different tapping points. So there's, I mean, do you want me to go through them quickly? or Yeah, I'm, I, you're a psychologist I'm a physician. So you're fascinated by the psychology of this. And I'm fascinated by the physical medicine of this. So I really need you at this moment in time to focus on the physical tapping. So first okay. of all, show me the movement itself. Is it okay. just literally that? Okay, yes. Yeah, so that's the karate chop point. So first of all, I need to clarify, I'm not a psychologist. I'm you're a clinical a mental, mental health social, social worker, worker. All right, okay. in case I end up right. getting caught a bit right. misrepresenting myself. So we okay. tap there and that sets up, as I said, that connects with uh, preventing so psychological where? reversal. Where exactly? In the karate chop point. So it's between there and there. Right. So we tap on that part. So right. for an you're example could there. be have heightened anxiety. Yep, I totally right. love and accept myself. So we'll, again, we're, right. we're looking at the right, studs. We know let, that we've got a high score. Let's stop with the psychologists for the moment. Just okay. show me the, the tappings. You're tapping there. So Where there's one, okay. Then we're tapping on the corner of the eyebrow point and right. we just, with two fingers, tap there. It's a very, very yeah. forgiving practice. We right. move across to the side of the eyebrow. Yeah where women sometimes get their Botox, <laughs> um, right. under the eyebrow, sorry, under the eye, just under that bone. The zygoma. We tap under the yeah. nose, yeah. under the chin, yeah. sort of just yeah, under the lip. Now, yeah. we've got a collarbone, so I hope this doesn't yeah. interfere with my microphone, but we tap on the collarbone here. Yeah. We tap under the armpit. All right. You feel like a bit of a gorilla doing this one, but it's kind of under the rib cage. <laughs> And then there's some different parts on our fingers. Um, you, which... can, you, can you put your hand up so I can see your hand? Okay, so we're tapping on there, there, yeah. there. Technically the um, middle, sorry, the ring finger or this one doesn't really do anything, but we just inc incorporate it anyway for the sake of it. Yeah. But of course, while we're tapping on all these parts, we're vocalising yeah. we'll whatever's going on. We'll move to the psychology on. in a second. I just want to go through yeah. the tapping points. 
Okay, so that's the tapping points. Right, um, so and essentially, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Okay. You've showed us the tapping points in the hands, the face, the head and the neck and the chest. There are no tapping points in the abdomen, the pips, the, the legs. Is that right? That's correct. There, okay. I mean, there are ones you can do, but we're not, we don't use them. We and also when right. you're thinking of, no. And I think also respecting people's um, boundaries and, you know, especially if people have been traumatised or they've got a history of, of sexual abuse. We, I, I personally don't want to be travelling down too far anyway exactly. myself. Right. Okay. <laughs> so before we move into understanding the psychological principles that occur whilst we're doing these tappings, I'm going to throw a spanner into the works. Is it the tapping that works better? Or would the tapping work on its own? Or is it the psychology that works better and would work on its own? Or is it genuinely the case that two need to coexist to actually have a benefit? Yes. We do know that if we're driving somewhere, even if we're not vocalising, um, I know uh, a lot of trainers, a lot of people who do this work might just tap on certain parts even when they're driving, just because it does re it does reduce the cortisol levels. But when it does come to working on when it comes to working on specific um, triggers, issues, traumas from the past, they need to be done both together. Right, and this is not mumbo jumbo. You know, no, there is a it's decent evidence based behind this, and it really does. There work. is. I mean, I've looked at some of the research. I, I, I'm not an expert in it entirely, but I am aware that there is good evidence that this actually does reduce cortisol levels and does help with anxiety and also with typical depression. It doesn't necessarily yes. work with atypical depression, but it does work with anxiety disorders certainly. Now, that's yes. that's surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I love about EFT is that most of us have got stories in our head. So while we're tapping, we're just giving ourselves permission to meet ourselves exactly where we're at. We're at. Um, I, I wonder whether there's a linkage with things like, you know, I'm trained very much in a lot of the Jungian work, which is about sort of acknowledging the dark and the light. When we've got all this stuff running through our head or we've got all these worries or we've got all these self-doubts they're there anyway so why not let the words hit the air as we tap because right. it's going on <laughs> okay so now is your time to talk about the psychology that is occurring as we're tapping i, I now that we've got out of the get rid of the uh the, the physical stuff tell me everything you wanted to tell me when you we were describing those tapping and meridian lines <laughs> okay so what's really interesting <laughs> is each of these different parts have a connection to a relationship to possibly emotion in the body. And, and it's phenomenal when I'll say to a client, tell me something, what, out of all the parts that we tapped on, what part gave you the greatest amount of relief? And I'll go back to a particular chart and I'll have a look. And nine times out of 10, the issue that they've come in about, uh, say it could be um, getting caught up in uh, really uh, being torn or, or triggered or uh, more like frustration or their when I go back and look on the actual uh, list of where these different parts affect, so if someone's got a lot of anger, then I'll, I'll go back and I'll say, yeah, you know what, this, this part under here was the part that felt the best. Nine times out of 10, when I check it against that part, that's actually the part that the body instinctively got the most relief from. And that was usually connected with the presenting problem. 
So I don't know this. When I go in there and do the work, I don't know this. But when I'll just out of curiosity and I'll just ask them and I'll go back to this chart and they'll go, yeah, well, this is where it felt the best. And I'm like, yeah, there you go. Right. So where, where is this chart? Have you, have you got a chart to show us or could, we, could you give it to us afterwards and we could stick it up on the website? To you, yes, for sure. Um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, different parts uh, relate to different, um, some of the stuckness, some of the frustration, the, um, you know, the, the gerballing, the wheeling that we get stuck on. Um, so, yeah. and the anger, sadness, grief. Yeah. So, tell me, tell me a case that you've dealt with that, that this has worked for, yeah, if you can anonymize it. Can I, can I really give you a snippet on how it actually came to be? Can I really yeah, very sure. quickly? Have, yeah. Okay, so a while ago, um, I, I believe he was a clinical psychologist. Uh, Dr. Callahan was working with a, a client that he in, in, inherited, um, a lady by the name of Mary, who had a massive water phobia. And like this had been longstanding. I think she had been in treatment for years upon years. Nothing was shifting. And Dr. Callahan was doing some work in kinesiology at the time. And back in the days, like, um, you know, many, many years ago, sometimes some of our forebearers as far as psychology would work with patients in their homes. Um, I know a lot of the Gestalt uh, therapists did. I know some of the humanistic um, transactional analysis trainers, um, the pioneers of those works used to actually work with clients in their homes. So Dr. Callahan was working with Mary and he just thought, look, you know, what am I going to do? I've got this patient, she's not getting any better. And he just thought at a whim, tried and applied some of the tapping that he was using in some of the kinesiology to her. And she got up and walked off to his swimming pool and jumped in the swimming pool and goes, I'm not scared, Dr. Callahan, I'm not scared anymore. And of course, plonked herself in the pool. Of course, it was safe. She wasn't going to drown in there or anything like that. But um, so that's when he started to realise, look, I'm clearly on to something. And from there on then, um, and so he started up originally what was his uh, title of his work was Thought Field Therapy, which was quite a complicated, as I understand, a complicated technique. And then it was sort of uh, refined by um, Dr, let me guess his name, Dr Gary Craig. And there's a couple of Craigs. I've got to make sure I don't get their names mixed up. So then he, he actually created the EFT. And so, why, so in regard, did we move from thought technique to emotional freedom technique? What does that mean? Therapy was apparently quite, it was, it had a very similar resonance to EFT, but it was quite difficult as I understand to learn. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of learning, a lot of theory. And I think people got put off by the complexity of all of that, that it, it became refined. And interestingly, um, uh, what was his name? Sorry, Gary Craig. He was a um, an engineer, so he <laughs> modified this and then how somehow put it all together. But I have seen so much of his training. Uh, so in in answer to your question, when when I've actually worked with clients, I I have them come into my room. It could be uh, cravings for certain foods. It could be heightened anxiety. I mean, I had one last week whose anxiety was at an eight out of ten after nearly having an accident and. Uh, he was berating himself over the fact that he was uh, he'd been changing a, a tune on his phone while trying to drive and had a near miss and was cursing himself something savage. And so we did the you know intellectually knew that he hadn't hit anybody, but was really uh, beating up on himself for doing something so stupid like that on the road, according to himself. So it got that worked that through. Uh, he was having nightmares and brought that right back down to a zero out of ten, and there was no more symptoms after that. 
Um, I do it a lot with eating. I do it a lot with addictions. So, and right. spider phobias. I, I use I do it on my own kids, you know, when they have to do some performances and stuff. So, right. yeah, I've, I've never seen it not work in, in all my time that I've been using this. Right. So you've said a lot that is triggering my mind. Uh, mm. but the first point I want to make is I think it's absolutely hilarious that it takes an engineer, a scientist, to actually come up with this emotional freedom technique. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> yeah, and yet it's been taken into um, health psychology. Uh, Dr. Uh, I think it's Dr. Peter Stapleton. Let me just double check. Uh, yeah, so Dr. Peter Stapleton here. So here's the EFT um, has been researched in more than 10 countries by more than 60 investigators whose results have been published in more than 100 different journals. So, yes. And I remember when I did my training, there was five people who had been veterans and they all had a you know a various range of symptoms from major depressive disorder panic disorder substance abuse disorder like they you know literally had the trifecta and you i was watching these guys be interviewed before they had done one of the particular techniques that's used in eft which is uh tell the story technique and they were having a dreadful time they couldn't even sit comfortably in their chairs they were leaping up they were highly highly distressed and we saw them re-interviewed after that after the the tell the story technique and i believe not one of them may, met clinical criteria for any of the symptoms that they had originally been dealing with that had actually interfered with their life for about 10 years i mean these people's wives were about to leave them because they couldn't cope with the symptoms and the impact it was having on the family so the relief and like they were really just basically saying that it really needs to become mainstream it really needs to be recognized as a as a treatment in its own right to make sure that people don't suffer unnecessarily so let's talk about some of the diagnoses that i've heard you mention so uh eating disorders or, or emotional eating addiction yeah. yes uh, ptsd phobia panic yep yes you know if you could cure those, <laughs> let's talk about addiction. Yeah. Yes. So How does EFT apply to addiction? So EFT, there's, there's a couple of different things. Obviously, when we're looking at understanding the relationship to something. So here's the beautiful thing. And, and I think there's a relatability when we're talking about, you know, even with foods. Okay. So sometimes what people are actually wanting is the feeling that comes from what they believe is the drug. Now, if somebody has started to feel immense relief around using alcohol and for once they've actually been able to socially integrate or participate with people socially without that dread of, oh, my God, they're going to think I'm an idiot, I'm not good enough, I feel stupid, I, I can't fit in. Sometimes when people have to give up a substance, what what's actually happened is the feel-good feelings have been mixed in with the actual drug and so the brain has associated these two things together and when someone then says oh look you know i want you to give up this drug i want you to give up this food i don't want you to do that people go into panic because it's like you're asking me to give up the feel-good feelings that have been right. associated and that's usually where uh, that sense of, oh, my gosh, that's not fair. I don't want to, I can't relinquish this. This isn't good. And then, of course, what happens? We get the flood of the cortisol and we start getting ourselves into such a stress 
a stressful cycle that people don't want to give it up. The other thing that I've seen, and this was um, extending on from sort of mainstream EFT, is more around what we refer to as some of the unconscious blockers that cause grief for people when it comes to stopping or changing their relationship to a particular uh, substance, including so food. What are blockers? So the blockers are the things that, how many times do people instinctively know why perhaps using drugs isn't such a good idea or perhaps, you know, eating that packet of Tim Tams is just not great. So what sometimes happens is when we track when per a person's uh, relationship to a substance or food gets out of control, what we'll often find is that things that are getting in the way could be things like, particular for people who uh, deliberately overeat to change their bodies because they want to potentially appeal, uh, sorry, become less appealing. They don't want to be desired or they don't want to have any unwanted attention is one of the blockers that is where someone's usually been shamed about their body or they've been sexualized or especially for people who've had a history of um, sexual abuse. So for some people, if they don't want to draw any unwanted attention to themselves, they might choose to remain in relationship with a particular substance, particularly food, if it means that they put on weight as a means of avoiding having to be desired or uh, potentially get some unwanted attention that they do not want. So, uh, so that's one. On to food. So, 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 okay. Well, there, there, there is, okay. So I guess there is, a, there is a resonance. So food's one of the things where, you know, if I'm attractive, I will get unwanted attention. I won't know how to say no. And I'll go back to the traumatic experience that I had when I couldn't get my granddad to leave me alone. So are you saying that emotional overeating is related to a trauma? usually a, That's a one. sexual trauma. That can be one. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a, a gang rape. It could be something like a time where you were shamed in your body. So it could be when, you know, for some girls, if they started to develop quite early and some, you know, person made some, you know, disparaging comment about the fact that she was developed. It could be anything like that. So that's just one example. But usually sexual trauma is a big thing when it comes to eating. Um, other things can be tracking when did a substance start or when did food start? So if a person started to use alcohol, the moment they left their family of origin home to start being, say for argument's sake, they've come from a highly religious family where um, say intimacy or say sex had had such a big thing in their life where that was just, oh, that's not, you know, ugh. or there was some sort of attitude about that. What can happen is the person, the moment they start to move out of the family home and start living in a marital relationship, it brings up all the, the stories that they may have been uh, exposed to when they grew up. So people find salvation in something that numbs that part while they try to then go on to the next stage of psychosocial development, which could be, I'm trying to live like I'm in a married relationship. So, so it's, it's let, very- Let me just recap. You've just said that, that, that emotional overeating is more often than not related to a past discomfort with some kind, kind of sexual attention or, in, for that matter, or trauma. Body, sh body shaming or even body shaming. Body shaming, right. And the same goes for other substances like alcohol. So there's a, there's a share. Is that right? Yep. Yep. 
so in, in, in the person who then goes off and gets married, if, say, for argument's sake, they uh, they didn't have to deal with uh, having to negotiate in their own mind what their relationship with them, they say their sexuality was, they may then start getting married, you know, get married and all of a sudden the stories that have come back from their very scripted family um, of origin, now all of a sudden they're trying to integrate that into the relationship and they might be at odds with that. So that's a second time. So in, if you apply that to food, uh, some of the examples we'll see is people have made a connection with uh, being married and maybe say they went and had a really lovely honeymoon and they ate lots of really, really rich foods. And then what they're, what they're craving for when they eventually maybe all the dust settles and now they're starting to live uh, after 10 years of marriage, what they're really seeking is the feelings that came with that experience of when they first maybe connected with their husband. But they don't know it because those two things have been connected mm. by what we call associations in the brain. Right. Tell me about PTSD in this regard. So PT, okay, so, okay, well, that uh, the unconscious stuff, I don't really... When it comes to the the, the different uh, seven sort of subconscious blockers that get in the way, that's I don't usually see a lot of PTSD connected in with that, unless it's as I said, usually a sexual trauma. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. So we've discussed the process of developing these problems. Basically, yes. it relates to your childhood or your or your development. Yes. Usually, before the ages of seven, uh, we will take on everything and just absorb it. So emotional eating and alcohol use of disorder starts in the brain under the age of seven. That's what you're saying. Well, the the or the predisposition to it. The predisposition, in the sense that we take on everything because we don't have the developed sense to reality test to to weigh up our own you know appreciation or our own relationship right. to that. So it's like we're a sponge. So. The unconscious, I've, I've read stats that say that our unconscious behaviour drives, our unconscious processes drive anywhere between 80 to 90, sometimes 95% of what we do. Right. Our conscious so, is less than that, of course. How does emotional freedom technique help in these situations? How does emotional freedom technique help with emotional overeating and alcohol use disorder? So what we... What we do, so there's a couple of other, one other really important uh, trigger that can get in the way is if somebody was to succeed, so, okay, in, if we're applying, okay, so we can use it for both. If someone was to, to walk away from, say, a very, very big drinking family culture or they were to walk away or make changes to their weight, one of the questions we will often ask is, say, for argument's sake, you walk into a room and you no longer carry the weight that you originally carried, or you walk into a family event, but you don't have a bottle of bourbon with you. Who in that group is going to make a disparaging comment? Who is likely to say something to you? Because the, again, the unconscious blocker will be, I'm no longer part of the tribe. I will right. be, I will be um, marginalized or I will be, um, or you'll, you'll upstage somebody or somebody won't appreciate the fact that you've made changes. The other thing that's really big to um, unpack to is relationship to authority figures. So uh, again, a lot of resistance, a lot of um, authority work uh, is usually done when people have had a parent that has simply told them the word no without an understanding. You know, there's a difference that 
people observe when it comes to separating care versus control. So if I say to a, you know, hypothetically, I say to my daughter, look, um, I don't want you uh, cutting that bread with that knife. There's a risk that you'll cut yourself. Well, there's a pretty good reason why don't do it. But if I just simply said to a young person, don't, no, I'm just telling you no. Well, you can feel the energy. It's not It's not coming from a place of no, don't do this because it's doing that because I can say no to you. So when we're doing authority figure work, it's because the relationship to the authority figure has become kind of become ingrained in the person and they're actually in battle with that part. So someone says, no, I don't want you to smoke, dr- smoke drugs. Person goes, get stuffed. I'm going to do what I want. Even though in the long run, they're in battle with themselves, but they don't really realize it until we kind of break it down. So I asked the question again, how does EFT help with that? We actually realize where the, where our authority or our uh, choice and determination has actually been taken. And we work, we take clients back to that moment again, applying the EFT process. So it's quite, it's quite interesting work, but the relief is, is huge. So we actually, yeah, because as far as it's concerned, like when I spoke about um, EMDR last time, it's stored as a memory. So we actually go back and we, we work on where someone reclaims their, uh, their authority and we, we unpack what's really going on and we, we take the battle av- out of that dynamic within themselves, again, applying the techniques of EFT. All the while tapping on a particular part of the body. So you're yeah. asking about their, their past history, their antecedents, and their relationships with authority figures, their, their trauma, their abuse, their, their disparaging comments, all the while the patient is tapping their hand or their... So, so yeah, you, you kind of, okay, so one of the things that we, that I use with, it's a different type of EFT, is where I might ask the person to, there's a technique that we do which is called push, push the food away. So, and I would imagine it's no different to push the drugs away. So when we get an emotional charge of, I really feel like I want to use, or I really feel like I want to eat, or I want to grab a drink, I ask a client to say, to just to stop and ask themselves just to pause and go, what's happening right now? And then I'll ask them, and it's going to sound um, a bit weird, but I'll actually ask them to say, close your eyes, follow the feeling back and tell me where you are. And usually what will happen, they'll go back to a moment where, I'm seven, I'm eight, I'm in the kitchen, I'm watching this happen. And then we get them to tap and we get them to go back and and, and what, you know, what's going on right now? What are you experiencing? Okay, I I feel, I'm okay, I can sense that um, there's a big fight with mum and dad. Uh, Dad's, you know, threatening to leave mum. Mum's really upset and and you might go back to this story around that. And at the same time, then you're obviously getting them to tap because we want the cortisol level to come down. And we do a bit of what we even refer to as kind of reparenting work. So I might actually say, you know, what's that six-year-old really needing from you? Or what's that eight-year-old really scared for? And then we go in there and we do the the work on a a level where it's kind of like, okay, what's, what's she needing? What does she need to hear from you right now? And it's amazing because the client will then come back and go, I'm fine, she's cared for, and the story has then changed in, in the way that, that it's stored in the memory. So the person so, will still have the memory of mum and dad fighting. That, that, won't, that won't change. But the emotional charge to it is no longer there, similar as what happens with EMDR. So to, to summarise, it really does work. It's not just mumbo-jumbo. 
Marie, we're going to have to end it there. That's the end of the show today. As usual, I wish we had much more time and I look forward to speaking with you again very soon. Thank you so Excellent. much. Excellent. Thank you. That's it for today's MedHead show. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and I look forward to your joining with us again very soon. Mm -hmm.